This is hell. Welcome to America. This is hell. Today we're talking about something very, very uniquely American, and that is the McMansion and uh, in all its ready-made disposable grandeur. As our guest describes these behemoths of residential architecture, the McMansion, which is often the property of homeowners who also own trucks that are also far too big and, like McMansions, completely unnecessary and thoroughly wasteful during a time of global warming and rampant inequality. But there's something more to the McMansion, which began in the 1980s, but really exploded onto the scene with the housing bubble, leading up to that bubble bursting with the Great Recession of 2008. You may be thinking that the McMansion scare would have ended with the bubble bursting, but it didn't. In fact, it's gotten worse, with so many critics now focused on what our guest describes as the boxy five-over-one apartment building, so named for its five stories of residential units over one story of retail that began blanketing every American city. The new McMansions faded into the backdrop of the American landscape. So, with the primacy of the individual taking greater and greater hold of U.S. culture and society, with profits over people dominating it all, homeowners have increasingly sequestered themselves in homes that give residents no reason to ever leave their residences and be part of the commons ever again, all while showing off their wealth and class status to their neighbors, whoever they are. Soon things may change, whether it's the physical or political climate, and we may, hopefully, for our and art's sake, see the end of the, the McMansion in a few minutes. We will have the return of critic and journalist Kate Wagner, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, Bad Manners, as in a building, M-A-N-O-R-S, Bad Manners, the McMansion as harbinger of the American apocalypse. Kate is the creator and writer of the viral satirical architecture blog McMansion Hell, and her work on architecture has appeared in The Baffler, The Nation, The New Republic, The Atlantic, Curbed, 99% Invisible, Architecture Digest, and more. McMansion Hell roasts the world's ugliest houses from top to bottom, all while teaching about architecture and design. As the blog states, if you love to hate the ugly houses that became ubiquitous before and after the bubble burst, you've come to the right place. Since its launch in July of 2016, the blog has been featured in a wide range of publications, including the Huffington Post, Slate, Business Insider, and Paper Magazine. You can find McMansion Hell online at McMansionHell.com and follow McMansion Hell on Twitter at McMansionHell. Kate recently graduated from John, Johns Hopkins with a Master's of Arts in Audio Science, specializing in architectural acoustics. Her thesis project examined intersections of acoustics, urbanism, and late modern architecture. This will be Kate's third appearance here on This Is Hell. She was on the show most recently back in 2020 to talk about another of her articles at The Baffler, Staring at Hell, the Aesthetics of Architecture, in a ruined world. You can find all of our interviews with Kate at our website by going to thisishell.com and just searching on the last name Wagner. 
I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Kugler. Dan, how are you doing? Anything new in your world? Well, I went and got a fancy blender. Uh, oh, did a you? A food processor, and uh, the best part is it's self-cleaning. So it, you put water and soap in it, and it, you pr- just press a button, and it cleans itself. Oh, that's pretty awesome. Because that's, that's the the pain of the processors is cleaning it and taking out all the parts. So I made a cream of broccoli soup, and it looked perfect, but it tasted like soap. <laughs> so don't forget to rinse after self-cleaning. Um, With yeah. your uh, food processor. I really want to get a food processor. We have like a stand mixer, and yeah. we have all sorts of different appliances, but we don't have that, and it's something that could come in really handy. It's Once I learn to clean it properly it'd be nice because it just, just works great and it's one thing so you don't want to yeah. have bubbles in your mouth when no. you're eating cream of broccoli soup no. so uh, this is really weird uh, our last conversation with today's guest kate wagner of mcmansion hell took place during that really odd time of truly bizarre uncertainty february 2020 One month after the first case of COVID-19 was reported in the United States in January, and one month before March, when the CDC would eventually recommend safety precautions, including hand washing, social distancing, isolation, and the closing of indoor public spaces. February 2020 was when we abandoned uh, handshaking and exclusively switched to fist bumping. When we were learning to cough into our elbows, Uh, but joints were still being shared because we didn't know any better or were in denial about the inevitable plague that was upon us, including when we were isolating, washing our groceries, wearing latex gloves, changing clothes every time we left our homes, every time we returned, and far too many were hoarding toilet paper unnecessarily due to a rumor stoked by fear, even including that moment of the pandemic. I still think the, that's the absolute weirdest time that took place, looking back, was when it seemed like the entire country was in denial of what we all knew was coming, and coming really soon. It was just a bizarre time when you think back about it. Far more important than looking back at one of the weirdest and the earliest moments of the pandemic. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. As always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Dan, what is Jeff talking about this week? I understand it has something to do with shanking. Yes, uh, Jeff will be poking the body of time to find a spot to give it a good 
shanking. <laughs> nice. Last week's question from hell for listeners was, what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? The winner was David Z, whose answer was brilliant. His reply was, the LSD I used to soak my phylacteries every weekday morning. I, nor Will Ippen, producer Will Ippen, are members of the tribe. We had no idea what phylacteries were, so I looked it up. Phylacteries, or teflon, are a set of small black leather boxes with leather straps containing scrolls of parchment inscribed on vellum with verses from the Torah. Tefillin are worn by adult Jews during weekday morning prayers as a reminder to keep the law. Jeff Dorchin, who does the Moment of Truth, he corrected my pronunciation, which I'm probably still butchering, but he wasn't the only one. Past guest Dan Colbert, author of Pretty Good House, A Guide to Creating Better Homes, also chimed in. Dan writes, it's pronounced Tafillin or Tefillin. It's one of those idiotic literal things from the verse about keeping it as a guidepost or something. There's a very precise way you wrap the tefillin, says Dan. A leather box with leather straps. I remember hearing about the genre tefillin porn, but never had the stomach to look it up. And neither do I, Dan. When I was a young adolescent, there were mitzvah mobiles roaming lower Manhattan, looking for Jewish-looking boys to guilt into putting on tefillin. Boy, they got me once. A friend whose sister has fallen in with that crowd tells me her son is doing it now. So I asked Dan if we could share his email on air. He replied, sure. I can't get, I can't get thrown out of the club any harder than I already have. As my Jewish uncle says, anti-Semitism is hating Jews more than absolutely necessary. Okay, you can send your emails to Dan Colbert on that comment. <laughs> And I look, uh, uh, and then Dan writes, I uh, looked up the stupid verse, Deuteronomy 6.8. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for a reminder between your eyes. So, this, so tefillin are a literal, physical representation of an Old Testament verse. And now you know, and I do too. Dan adds that he is glad uh, we had Jennifer London on the show last week to talk about chronic fatigue syndrome and her book American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation My Body's Revolt and the 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life Dan writes, London is a pal in real life. Her late success is amazing and I'm so glad you found her Actually, none of this is surprising as they both live in Maine and London was suggested to us by the editor of The Ballard at a, a Portland, Maine alternative magazine that has run very positive reviews of both London's and Dan's book. So it's not really all that surprising that they know each other. Not sure how we got so many listeners in Maine. I mean, the show started in Maine but completely failed. For those of you from Maine and even those of you who are not, did you know that we originally aired the show from a trawler off the coast of Popham Beach, Maine, just a little bit south of Bath, Maine? If you are a Mainer or not, and had no idea we were originally based in the Pine Tree State, and would like to hear those shows from the past, from Maine, contact us, and maybe we'll share those on Patreon. Listener Kim G. also answered that same question from Helen, a way that confused both me and producer Will Ippen. Her answer to what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut was sating my dog tooth. 
how Kim Ji was sating or satisfying her dog tooth, whatever that is, was a mystery to us, and we said so on air. Kim Ji writes some of the best answers to the question from hell and is a past winner, so we were kind of surprised we didn't get what she was saying. However, Kim wrote us to explain. She writes, Hi, Chuck. Didn't mean to be mysterious when I answered the question from hell. I was just trying a poetic way of saying I'm ignoring my bothers- <laughs> bothersome incisor tooth by not getting needed in very expensive dental work. I also felt vampire Thanks for all the fun and frightening shows. Best Kim G. Kim, thanks for all of the fun and now frightening answers to the question from hell you have provided over the years. And if anyone has a whole bunch of extra cash lying around that you are not eagerly giving to your good friends here at This Is Hell, you can find Kim G on our Discord and help her save her dog tooth. You too can contact us via email at chuck at thisishell.com, via Facebook, where you can message us at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or DM us on Twitter at thisishellradio. And if you do, we will likely read whatever you wrote to us on air. Coming up, McMansion Hell, we will have This Week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you everything that's happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, because this is hell, and fortunes are being made from the crime against architecture that is the McMansion. But the McMansion isn't only another horrible type of architecture. Like all architecture, it says something about the public it serves or the private families it houses. And the uniquely American McMansion says a lot about how the U.S. views the outside and inside world today. Returning to This Is Hell, critic and journalist Kate Wagner posted the Baffler magazine article, Bad Manners, the McMansion, as harbinger of the American apocalypse. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kate. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello from beautiful Slovenia. Yeah, Slovenia. You're not just in Chicago now. You're living in Slovenia as well. Why did you choose Slovenia? Uh, Because during the pandemic, I went crazy and decided to also (laughs) write about sports. And the sport I decided to write about was cycling. And the Slovenians are the best cyclists in the world. So I decided to come live here for a few months every year and learn Slovenian. Yes, this is the story. Wow, that's really great. That's an amazing thing to do uh, during the pandemic. You know, speaking of the pandemic, I had some questions written about the pandemic, so let's just start right there. How do you think the pandemic affected the McMansion? Do you think it reinforced the idea that people want McMansions or need McMansions, or do you think that it made them realize that, no, I want to be uh, more a part of my community, seeing mutual aid happen during the pandemic, and they've decided to turn their backs on McMansions? What has been the impact of the pandemic on McMansions? I definitely think for right now, it's a little too soon to tell. Um, I think that like it'll take about five years or so for that data to come out. But I know one thing is definitely true is that during the pandemic, everyone was looking at houses um, on Zillow, on Redfin. It was it became a kind of like national obsession because we were all stuck inside dreaming of maybe a bigger apartment. Uh, I know I looked at a lot of houses like, yeah, when I have money, maybe I'll have I'll you know buy some house or whatever. But yeah, I think that like. What's funny about the pandemic is that one of the really old school McMansion rooms, bonus rooms, was the home office. And this was a a kind of novelty that showed up when, uh, for for middle class people or upper middle class people in the 80s, when the personal computer started to develop and people started to be able to network and work from home. Uh, 
And so what's interesting is that I think that if anything is really going to change with the McMansion, it's it's this idea that uh, you need like this very separate space to be able to work. Um, but barring that, I mean, I think people kind of went a little bit insane during the pandemic. I know I did, and that's why I'm in Slovenia now. And so I think that, you know, this desire for more space, this desire for a bigger house was, I think, deeply felt for very ob obvious reasons, specifically because we were all stuck inside with one another. And I don't know if that's worn off by now, this, this kind of feeling of being trapped, but I definitely know as the, pure, as the purveyor of McMansion Hell that there was a, a general in, interest in, in not only the blog, but in McMansions in general. So I, I guess like part of the reason I wrote the article was because it's really a myth that the McMansion died to begin with um, or that it would be revived with the pandemic. It never actually went away. Well, why didn't the recession kill the McMansion? I mean, we had really low interest rates. Uh, you know, there was a housing bubble that was going on. Uh, today, we have these high interest rates, and it's you know the housing bubble is, uh, burst, and so a lot of people lost a lot of money in, in homes that they invested in, especially when it came to McMansions. So, why didn't the recession kill the McMansion? Yeah, this is a really good question, uh, and in fact, I think it's actually a really surprising phenomenon that the McMansion is so popular still. And if we're just going by numbers, you know, the number of houses that are built over 3,000 square feet, which is really in McMansion territory. I mean, that's full McMansion. It's really impossible for anyone who's not like a seriously talented architect to cram all that space under one roof in a way that looks good. You know, the, the numbers that are being seen here in terms of how many of those houses are built are actually really crazy. Uh, six, there were 68,000 houses built in 2021 alone that were 4,000 square feet or more, which is totally McMansion territory. No one needs a 4,000 square foot house. Um, and so what's interesting about that is, is even though interest rates are high, what seems to be, it just kind of further cements the idea that the McMansion remains in American society, this really idealized having made it kind of status symbol and it holds a phenomenal appeal for people with a lot of money. Even though we've had all of this rhetoric for the last 10 years about like the new urbanism or whatever, the new urban turn, the urban renaissance, the tech renaissance. But when it comes down to the meat and potatoes of what Americans want, a lot of them want McMansions uh, still to this day, which goes against kind of the narrative that the recession killed them. Okay, maybe it killed a certain aesthetic of McMansions. Like you no longer see, for example, McMansions emulating Tuscan villas, but you do see them in kind of dressed in, you know, fixer upper farmhouse gray. So it's it's not that the McMansion went away; it's just that it it changed shape. You write how the compound hip roofs of the aughts have been replaced with peaky clusters of clumsy gables, a nod to the faux folksy modern farmhouse trend ushered in 10 years ago by HGTV. You know, I think that we've talked about this on the show before, but I loathe HGTV. How, <laughs> in, how influential is HD, HGTV when it comes to home design? How big of a role do you think it plays in the new designs of not just McMansions, but how much, how influential do you think it is in our, you know, the public's understanding of architecture today? I mean, I think it's really influential because I think that uh, this is, 
HGTV is not just a television network. You have to understand that HGTV partners with every home improvement store in the country. You know, they exist in a feedback loop with Home Depot and Lowe's to sell more farmhouse stores or whatever. It's not like some big conspiracy. This is just where their advertising revenue comes from. And so it's not just that like they sell this idea, they sell these aesthetics, it's that those aesthetics are reinforced every time you go to the hardware store. And so it's kind of inescapable. It, it's this way of really kind of, it's, it's, it's a, I would call it a des design hegemony uh, that we see in non-architect, non-high architecture, non-capital D design. And so, I mean, I would argue that the farmhouse style was extremely influential because it, it tapped into a lot of things at once. It tapped into, for example, like this perennial American obsession with folksiness and authenticity, and especially as it pertains to rural life, which is what the suburbs kind of originally, uh, you know, that was the appeal, right, is that you weren't in the city. And now, of course, like this takes a political bend of like, yeah, East, you know, coastal elites or whatever. But I think that another part of it is that the modernism part is also really important. It's not just kind of like rusticated uh, very folksy actual vernacular design. It, it's that it's also sleek and expensive looking at the same time. It is on, like a modern farmhouse is a real oxymoron in style. And what's so interesting about that is that for a long time, the aesthetic fascinations of the nouveau, nouveau rich or maybe the upper middle class or the managerial class, whatever class you want to call it, the people who can buy McMansions, let's just say, has been influenced by uh, European design or by, you know, things pulled from history or things pulled from, uh, yeah, I don't know. But the farmhouse modern style is one of the first ever to be pulled from vernacular architecture or from American architecture that, you know, it's, but they're not real farmhouses, obviously. You're not on a farm. You're in some terrible suburb in, you know, Northern Virginia or whatever. It's, it's really quite funny. But I think that this speaks to sort of generally a more, I wouldn't say patriotic or reactionary turn, but it, it, you can read that into it, I think. And I also think that, uh, yeah, post-recession, every time there's a major recession, modernism comes back. And so it's this mix of this certain political climate with this perennial modernist revival that happens every time there's a major recession. Well, what causes that? Why, why do we look for modernism post-recession? That's really interesting. So one of the things that this is like a, a, something that came from, you know, we were living in postmodernism, right? Big columns, big foam, uh, entryways, uh, everything looked like a house. Uh, everything uh, was paying homage to the past, in, you know, in the 80s. And so ever since then, in the 90s, and then again, uh, you know, in the 2000s with the revival of, of Mad Men, in the 90s, it was more like Art Deco came back, for example. Uh, during the, the recession in the 90s, uh, the dot-com bubble, uh, you'd see uh, what they call critical regionalism, which is, anyways, I don't want to get into this. But the what happens is, is that like as people have less money, they become more interested in more pared-down aesthetics because opulence is out because everyone's broke. It's really that simple, but it is a kind of a really interesting recurring trend. Um, it, and this is why, you know, of course, mid-century modernism became so popular in 2008 uh, and has retained its popularity because I would argue we never really recovered from the recession. Um, you can talk to anyone who graduated from school in 2008 and ask them if they recovered from the recession, and the answer is no. 
You mentioned how the street you grew up on in Moore County, North Carolina, is unrecognizable now. What was once a mix of modest, low-slung ranch-style houses interspersed with pockets of turkey oak scrub had been invaded by gargantuan homes with equally oversized trucks parked in the driveway. I like the use of the word invasion because it does sound like an invasion and then an occupation. Uh, To you, what explains this desire for everything being far too big, far bigger than necessary? Whether it's huge trucks that are difficult to navigate in urban areas, impossible to drive around in a parking structure with very high fuel costs or gigantic homes that are expensive to heat, cool, and maintain. To you, what explains the demand and desire for the huge, the costly, and the unnecessary in the United States? This is just American culture. Uh, this We have this preoccupation with bigness as, as a symbol of success. Um, and I, I think that for one thing is it's because a big part of why the McMansion exists is because of urbanism, right? Because you couldn't build these houses without it being extremely expensive in the middle of a city, right? You would have to go out into the far-flung exurbs to be able to build a 4,000-square-foot house. But what that means is that a lot of the times, a lot of the social uh, elements of urban life are interiorized into the McMansion. For example, the theater the movie theater, the bar, you know, these, the cafeteria or the restaurant. It's it's not just that you have a kitchen, it's that you have a kitchen and a dining room and a wet bar and all of this, all of these things that are fundamentally social institutions become interiorized in the McMansion. And that's why they're so big. It's They're not so big because, you know, I live in a house, like I rent a room in a house in Slovenia that has five bedrooms, which sounds like it's a huge house, but it's not. Uh, it's not a huge house because it had i would say it's maybe like 2000 square feet maximum and it's not a huge house because they don't have all these ancillary rooms they have a living room and they have a kitchen and that's it they don't have a dining room they don't have a, a den they don't have a tv room they don't have a hobby room they don't have a man cave and so when you actually strip the house down to its bare functions which is like of course you know private space and, and public facing or social space of kitchen and living room and bedrooms and bathrooms, what, you know, it's actually quite easy to build a house with many rooms with those configurations, but that's not what the McMansion is about. It's not about bedrooms. It's not about bathrooms. It's about all of these other things as well. And that to me is a reflection of the kind of antisocial nature of American society. Um, so this is why it also remains so popular because you can't, you know, it takes 20 minutes to drive somewhere. <laughs> And so you have to replicate as much as you can of, you know, outside life inside the house, which is probably why, you know, the houses were considered interesting during the pandemic. So do you think what do you think the message that is being sent to the other people in the community when you have created a place that has substituted all of what is in the public space with a private space that's similar to it within their homes? What is the message that you're sending to your neighbors when, sure, you are willing to socialize, but only socialize within a private and exclusive setting and not one that is communal, not one that is having a common space with the rest of the public? What's the message, do you think, that— I mean, it's screw you. Yeah. It's I got mine. This is like the whole McMansion mentality is I got mine. 
Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's very individualistic. It's very narcissistic and it's very alienating. And you know what I think is really funny is that like people are okay building some house that towers a million feet tall, but like you try to build an apartment building or a duplex in any neighborhood in the US and everyone throws a hissy fit, it's insane. It's like the houses that they build, these five bedroom, like 4,000 square foot houses are just as big as an apartment building. But like, I don't know why, like people don't throw a fit about that. I mean, they just talk quietly and disgruntedly uh, under their breath about their, you know, crappy neighbors or whatever. But yeah, again, I think it just is a demonstration of, yeah, I got mine. I, you know, I'm successful and that's it. And if, you know, if you think that like, oh, it can't just be that. I mean, what if people have kids? What if they do this? And it's like people all over the world have found out ways to have many kids in relatively tight quarters. I mean, I've been living in Europe for four months. And, you know, it doesn't actually take that much space to raise children. This, the idea that you need a homestead is a completely American one that's invented. Uh, and so, yeah, I kind of, at this point in my career, have little sympathy anymore. <laughs> it's really funny because every time that we've had you on the show, we immediately get an email from somebody who, it's not somebody who lives in a McMansion, but they have parents who live in a McMansion, or they oh, have. I get those emails too. Right, and that they have no choice. That's all. That that's the only type of home that works for them. No, it's not. <laughs> you make a homework. This is what I don't understand. This is like this renovation show mentality too. It's like if you fix your home, you'll fix your life or something. If you have gray countertops, now your life will be better. This is ridiculous. You know, my husband and I live in a small apartment. It's maybe like 800 square feet. It has three bedrooms, but bedroom is a generous word for what, what those rooms are. They're like, I don't know, eight feet by eight feet. They're Chicago closet rooms. And, you know, we would like a bigger apartment, obviously, so we could have more books, so we could, you know, have more furniture that looks cool. But the thing is, is like we live where we afford, but we make it work. You know what I mean? The thing is, is, I, I mean, there's just this general American intolerance to make a space work for you it's possible it's it's not oh i need to live in a mcmansion no one needs to live in a mcmansion that's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard no one needs to live like that and it's getting to a point where a lot of people won't be able to live like that anymore the noose is closing in whether it's at the high interest rates whether it's like impending recession which is like just this constant cycle of big crashes and big upswings uh, and or whether it's the climate crisis, it's you know it's getting to a, it will get to a point within my lifetime, uh, and within the lifetime of most of the people who listen to the show, where that way of life is unsustainable, like in not only in an environmental way but in a literal way. So you mentioned the McMansion ethos. You mentioned ideals behind the McMansion. Are the ideas behind McMansions affecting all? home building, all architecture, no matter the home type or size, no matter the building type, what is their effect on architecture in general in the United States, if there is any at all? I mean, I would call it maybe the suburbanization of urban space. Like, for example, if you see new apartment developments, they all have, like, you know, really high fences behind which you can't see anything, or they have private dog parks, they have private lounges, they have private you know, dog baths, they have all of these amenities, they have private game rooms. This is a very suburban mentality that's been applied to, to public space, or not public, but like to multifamily and to accommodate like the people who want to 
basically live a permanent tourist life in a city because it's not for them about you know the community of the city it's about not being in the suburbs and seeing where they, people think things are cool um and so yeah they treat the city as a kind of commodity and they fetishize it um and so you'll these are you know if you look at apartment buildings in europe and i don't think that europe is like you know way better than the US. I mean, we have problems here in Slovenia, obviously, and a lot of American problems are just being exported to Europe anyways. So the, the, the days are numbered. But I mean, these are these superfluous rooms and these superfluous amenities are not really considered, uh, they're not part of the tradition of building in European multifamily space. Maybe you have a playground outside or something, but usually it's not fenced in. But it's, again, this fortress mentality that is now being applied to urban space, which I don't like. I mean, and I think this is where a lot of the outrage comes from toward new build apartment buildings, which are not necessarily bad. It's just that there are parts of them that are, are definitely closed off and definitely privatized and definitely suburbanized. So, yes, I mean, I don't know if I have an answer for this problem. It's It's just, I guess look elsewhere look stop looking maybe look within you know what i mean and as you know uh having lived in uh, living in chicago you share uh, your time between slovenia and chicago i mean look at what has happened to the loop look what's happened to the central business district here in chicago it has been completely turned into something that is for the suburbanite that is made to make the suburbanite no longer feel uncomfortable in the city but makes almost yeah. every person who lives in the city uncomfortable to live there anymore. We are speaking with critic and journalist Kate Wagner, who posted the Baffler Magazine article, Bad Manners, the McMansion as Harbinger of the American Apocalypse. Find McMansion Hell online at McMansionHell.com. Follow McMansion Hell on Twitter at McMansion Hell. You point out that owing to the fact that McMansions are owned by a demographic encompassing the upper middle class as well as the unconscionably rich it's tempting to lump them in with the partition or sorry patrician uh, architecture of old the uh, hearse castles and the biltmore estates however the truth is a bit more complex the mike the mcmansion straddles the divide between high and what's called vernacular architecture i.e the trailer parks and workers cottages and dormitories occupied by the working and middle classes the vernacular is the mass-produced architecture of the everyday to study it is to undertake a mix of architectural history and anthrop anthropology, a focus on the common most architectural critics and historians eschew, as the late architecture critic Ada Louise Huxtable wrote of the vernacular in another context, this is our culture and it is our architecture, like it or not, much more than the approved monuments of the tastemakers who treat the rest of the built environment like a bastard child. So, Kate, are, are McMansion's uh, poor interpretation of what is actually acceptable to taste makers, are they uh, misinterpreted as being in good architectural taste? I would say that the McMansion is best understood as an evolution of vernacular housing in America because the McMansion follows a very specific plan, and this plan has remained consistent across very many decades. And so what you could say about that is that uh, the McMansion is really an evolution of, uh, you know, kind of bifurcated plan that has its roots in, you know, colonial architecture. 
it's just been expanded to include other bonus rooms and things like this. So its roots are actually in the vernacular, I would say, more so than high architecture. Because the McMansion is not, you know, the McMansion did not break away from some house that was designed in 1970 or whatever, because architecture is doing something completely different then when the McMansion was developed. It basically developed along the axis of a vernacular colonial style house, however you want to call it, where you have, you know, living space and working space separated by a central hallway or central corridor, um, like a sitting room on one side, a kitchen on the other, uh, and then you have a you know living room in the back, and then you have a dining or a dining room uh, next to that. And yes, this is a very typical house plan in America. It's just been expanded, and so that's where this comes from, actually, because McMansions are usually not designed by architects; they're usually designed by builders, um, which is the domain again of uh, vernacular architecture. So I would say that yeah. It's a it's a mix of both. Um, it pulls elements from, you know, famous buildings, for example, you know, columns from Roman architecture. They interpret, you know, they pull from courthouses. They pull atria from the mall. I mean, it's very much a kind of magpie of architectural assemblage, you know. So I think that. Yes, but the McMansion is, is best understood as this thing that exists between two worlds. In that it's yes a vernacular invention obviously but you know the people who buy it who buy them are used to be the people who would commission architects they were at that income level um but the thing is is that architecture after postmodernism back in the 1990s um like high architecture capital a architecture the stuff that comes out of yale that, that diverged completely from the from the vernacular um really like if you look at mcmansions they're postmodern it's the postmodern vernacular um, it's that 80s, 90s pastel, goofy ornamentation bit, but done on a house. Um, but after architecture embraced deconstruction and it embraced like very strange movements like parametricism that no one who is a normal person cares about, then it, it didn't trickle down to the vernacular like it always has for you know hundreds of years. Um, and so there was this fundamental severance between architecture, high architecture, and low architecture that really, I think, has allowed the McMansion to continue to flourish because, you know, in and even like with mo like McModerns or modern modernist McMansions, they're not pulling from the houses that are being designed by architects. They're pulling from like celebrity stuff from like MTV Cribs kind of aesthetics, LA builders, not you know Olsen Pundig or whatever big star architect that you know creates lovingly meticulous meticulously crafted houses. So is uh, the McMansion then the result of supply or the result of demand? Is the vernacular uh, then the architecture that reflects the, the greater public or does it reflect the designers and builders' understanding of what they believe the public wants? It's always a mix of both. I mean, it's hard. To, I wouldn't read a po I wouldn't do a populist interpretation of the McMansion because you're not speaking to like a, a buying a buyer's market that is full of people whom you could say are like populist. You know, I mean, you know, these are not the general public. That these are like extremely rich people, and you can hold them accountable for having bad taste. But I think in terms of like, okay, yes, now builders, for example, Toll Brothers or Ryan Homes or Pulte Homes. They still build these kind of McMansion developments off of, you know, major highway ramps because that's where the demand is. 
um, because, you know, we don't live in an urbanist paradise. We know this is all bad urban planning, like building, you know, crappy, ticky-tacky houses off of I-95 or whatever. We know this is bad urbanism. doesn't matter because no one cares. You know, this is the real world. This isn't like urbanism Twitter where everyone has correct opinions. This is the reality of the built environment in America. And so I would say that, yeah, it's both, it is, it's demand. Um, if, if people didn't want to buy these houses, if there was not a market for these houses, no one would build them, even speculatively. You also point out that as square footage expands, so too do the amenities in a McMansion. As you were saying, a wet bar, a bonus, a rumpus room in the basement, a gym, a den exclusively for watching television, a in parentheses, decorative, library. There are merely, uh, these are merely tacked onto the existing core plan as the house metastasizes outward, upward, or both. Again, great use of the word there. The social structure of the nuclear heterosexual family permeates the plan. Rooms are excessively gendered, both for children and adults. Man caves and she sheds abound. How do you see McMansions promoting a very gendered heterosexual nuclear family? When considering the bottom line, what's wrong with architecture that is gender-based toward a family consisting of a man, a woman, and their children. Isn't that at least a plurality of families in the United States? So wouldn't it make sense to build homes that are based toward that very large group of families? I mean, it's not necessarily that it's a, a bad thing that, I mean, I would say that like making, you know, enforcing upon your daughter like pink frilly room is like kind of passe, uh, obviously because we live in, I guess, a more liberal world. But I think that it's just, I wouldn't say that, it, I would say it's a reflection of the sort of conservative social mores of the U.S. That's what I would say about that. Not that it's, the critique is of the mores in general. The houses just reflect them. You know what I mean? And so, I mean, I find it kind of silly that you're making your small child live like in a room where that's decorated like, a, you know, with army tanks or with, uh, you know, pink frills, just, uh, I don't know, when I was a child, for example, my parents allowed me and my sister had to have autonomy with how our rooms were decorated. They didn't enforce these things, even when we were children, like they had, my childhood room was painted yellow, it wasn't painted pink, even though we were two girls, because they asked us, even though we're like, you know, three years old or whatever, what color do you want your room to be, and say yellow, and then that was it. It's, it just is, it, there's a rigidity about it that makes me uncomfortable personally. And of course, you know, again, these are just reflections of American social norms, which are excessively gendered, which are, are excessively heterosexual, which is, are excessively uh, prioritizing making money above everything else. And so the McMansion is, again, just a reflection of this. Uh, you can moralize that as you will. You write the McMansion is sold in catalogs, not not unlike the vernacular homes that could once be ordered from Sears. Interior customization is mostly limited to details and finishes, the spackled granite countertops and wrought iron balustrades and overwrought chandeliers and great tiling that looks like wood but isn't. Up here in this neighborhood, in the West Ridge and Rogers Park neighborhood, as you may know, know Kate, there are a lot of old Sears homes. I actually have a Sears, a reproduction of a Sears uh, catalog that has the homes in it, and they, they were at one time pretty ubiquitous, almost to the point that a McMansion is. Is the McMansion the current Sears home, a kind of mass-produced kit home? And if it is, what explains why they're so expensive? Because that was one of the other things about the Sears home, is that it was inexpensive. 
I would say no. I would say that it's probably closer to the kind of um, back in the 19th and early 20th century before the Sears home and the industrialization of the Sears home, they had what were called catalog houses or pattern book houses, which tended to be really big rambling Victorians. And I would say they're probably closer to that. Um, the degree of customization, the degree of, uh, you know, the income level that you were dealing with, I would say that would probably be their predecessors. It's like you, they're from catalogs, but they are not, you know, the Sears houses were mass produced and these were not, you bought the plans from a catalog and then you took them to a local builder and then you had them build it. That's a, that's a different, uh, phenomenon, but I would say that's the origin. And you write that the McMansion is always fundamentally the same house. The signifiers change, but the house remains. There are millions of McMansions. There will be millions of McMansions. And so this reminds me of, you know, you come to a new city, but you go to the fast food franchise or whatever restaurant franchise because you're familiar with it. You don't check out the local restaurant. You check out locally owned restaurant. That might be a one-off you go to the place that makes you comfortable. Is that another attraction to a McMansion, that they are all the same, something people who have lived in them and are comfortable with, and despite moving, they're generally always in the same house, that they that these homes are not challenging, that no matter where it is, if it's in St. Louis or St. Petersburg, wherever it happens to be, that's one of the attractions because it is the same house that people grew up in. Yeah, I mean, I would say at this point, maybe. Um, it's a little bit different because yes, we're now living in the jet, like with people who are my age who grew up in them, but like, you know, there's a huge disparity in wealth between my generation and the previous generation. And so I don't know what will happen, uh, as the generations change over, some people will get inheritances, but my parents are probably not leaving me anything, maybe debt. Uh, and so it just depends. I don't know. Uh, this is a, a question I, I don't really have an answer to because it remains to be seen how the generational shift will manifest in architecture. I'm glad that you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to inheritance, because you also write that the real question now is who is still building, buying and living in these houses? It is stubbornly difficult to nail down. According to Realtor.com, millennials are moving to the suburbs where mortgages are often cheaper than urban rents. Boomers are downsizing for accessibility reasons, often competing with millennials for the same entry-level houses. Gen X, making up 22% of home buyers, are now the ones looking for larger trade-up homes. And American uh, Home Shield survey indicates that the largest homes are being built in the West in Utah, Colorado, while with other concentrations forming in emerging tech hubs like Raleigh, North Carolina, Austin, Texas. In essence, the only certainty is that when Americans get richer through generational wealth transfer or through industry, they tend to seek out McMansions. When boomers die and bequeath their wealth to their children, those children will probably also build a bunch of McMansions. So are, how much are uh, McMansions the result of cuts in estate taxes? Does more wealth via inheritance mean more space in homes? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a pretty one-to-one -one relationship. It's, you know, I don't, I don't even know if generations are relevant here to, in, in the first place because people who have money want to buy a huge house. That's it. As we say in Slovenian, that's it. Um, and so I think it's a pretty simple relationship between wealth and square footage. Uh, and so I don't know what exactly 
again, like I said before, it was this is like a cultural norm. This is, you know, the, as people kind of climb in their careers or in their social status, like they will want those bigger houses. And also because, you know, urban rents and everything are so unaffordable, yeah, people will start moving to the suburbs. Like, for example, my husband is a, does a lot of political organizing, and he does a lot of organizing with Amazon warehouse workers, and they don't live in Chicago, Illinois. They live in Joliet. So, again, the demographic changes are moving against these stereotypes about the suburbs. The suburbs are no longer the sort of domain of, just like rich white Trump voters or whatever. They're increasingly diverse because the cities are becoming full of, I don't know, Salesforce workers or something like this. Like these upper managerial class kind of people, like the people who move into Logan Square where I live and tear down workers' cottages to build mini McMansions. And they have like two Labradoodles. We all know these people. <laughs> and so, yeah. People will just go where they can afford to live. And people with money have more autonomy and will choose to sort of replicate institutions, whether they're architectural or social or whatever, that preclude wealth. It's very simple. This is this is kind of the funny thing about having a materialist view of society is that the answers are not so much about hand-wringing about morals or whatever, but they're just simple relationships between money, architecture, labor, all of these things. Right, and you also mentioned that the McMansion is a testament, too, to a Reagan-era promise of endless growth, endless consumption, and endless easy living that we've been loath to disavow. There is now the degrowth movement as opposed to the economic, the constant economic growth movement. Uh, is the McMansion the outcome of easy credit? Is it just the constant economic growth model on display? Yeah, I think this is like maybe a little bit of recency bias because the McMansion really came around in 1970. And so I in the 1970s, which again, like there is a relationship between easy credit and uh, McMansion building, for example, and it always has ended badly. For example, like there was a huge uh, impetus to, to build more during the uh, recession in the 70s. And so that has a factor. Second of all, there was, you know, you had the savings and loan era of the 80s. Then you had, you know, of course, the subprime mortgage era. And now I don't know what you have. We're going to do subprime mortgages again, probably. Low interest rates, let's call it that. And so, yes, you see, of course, more people build more house than maybe that they could afford. But this is, again, putting the blame on the wrong people for when it all goes bust. Uh predatory lending, kind of like just general fiscal hawkishness, all of these things affect ordinary people in significant ways. Whether that's, I mean, the McMansion is maybe a byproduct of it, but these are, there are greater economic forces at work here. And you point out that the present crisis surrounding the depleted Colorado River, which made the front page of the New York Times this week, owing to overconsumption and a world historic mega drought plaguing the Southwest since the 2000s, will be the first real test of the McMansion way of life, the life of endless plenty. Do you think water shortages from the Colorado River will end the McMansion? What is the likelihood, I should say, that that will end concepts like living in excess in deserts where there is no water accessibility? Yeah, well, they've cut off already uh, some suburbs and excerpts around Phoenix, for example, and they've issued a moratorium on building new ones. Golf courses are going to dry up. I mean, already insurance companies are pulling insurance from places like Florida and California. And so one of two things can happen here. The state takes over to insure houses that are going to become like 
obviously a liability. I mean, insurance is one of those things that is like a really bare naked kind of reality of capitalism. Insurance companies will say what politicians will not. They won't insure homes that are that present too high of a risk because it's bad for their business. Their business is to hedge risk. That's it. And so what you're going to see is it's going to be impossible to build a house or buy a house in California, in Florida, in Arizona, in these places that are real like McMansion rich places that are indelibly tied to the idea of the American dream. The water crisis is going to compound that. You know, people are going to force uh, these little towns and stuff full of rich people to build their own infrastructure because they've been piggybacking off of public water from cities for like ever and ever, basically since the beginning. So, I mean, this is really the test. One last question for you, Kate. We have been speaking with critic and journalist Kate Wagner, who posted the the Baffler magazine article, Bad Manners, the McMansion as Harbinger of the American Apocalypse. You can find Kate's blog, McMansion Hell, online at McMansionHell.com and follow McMansion Hell on Twitter at McMansion Hell. One last question for you, Kate, and as we always do with our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we, we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You write, we need quite literally a revolution. And every revolution, lest we forget, is an architectural revolution, and that is something that we often forget. You add the Industrial Revolution brought about the dawn of modernism. The Russian Revolution initially saw the demise of bourgeois opulence in favor of constructivism. The French revolutionaries looked upon the Palace of Versailles with disgust, for it represented everything loathsome about monarchist, uh, monarchist uh, French society, inequality, waste, and excessive filigree. So, too, under increasingly dire material conditions spurred by climate change and intersecting political catastrophes, will we, we will look to neighborhoods near highways of off-ramps and high-traffic artisanal roads. That's where we're going to look. Are McMansions, then, a revolution against the ideas of dense, walkable, mass transit-oriented communities, replacing them with homes meant to offer everything the outside world can, close to spreading, widening highways, accommodating individual commuters and their cars. Is the McMansion a revolution against the city? No, I would say that maybe, yeah, if you want to go for from backwards, from you know, the 1950s, urban renewal, et cetera, with that white flight to the suburbs or whatever, then yes, you could say the McMansion is like the product of a, of a reactionary movement uh, towards integration of cities but or towards urbanism or whatever you want to call it. But now I think it's less against I think that urbanism or like dense urbanism or, you know, a a refocus on cities is the revolution against McMansions, not the other way around. That's that's what I would say my answer would be to that question. And so the McMansion is now hegemony. And of course, revolutions will take place against hegemonic powers. And so that's the what that is the task. And if we don't do it, then the insurance companies will do it. Kate, it's always a pleasure having you on. I really enjoy your writing. You're, uh, you're a great wordsmith. I really appreciate it in your work. Thank you so much for being back on our show. It's always a pleasure, and you know that I'll be bugging you in the future to have you back on. Thank you. All right, take care, Kate. You too, ciao. The kind of stuff that starts fights at the dinner table, this 
is hell. And talk about a topic that will definitely get you in a fight at the dinner table when celebrating with family, extended family, and even family friends who have become extended family. Because one of them is bound to live in a McMansion or know someone or love someone who does. And they will take your criticism of their friends home as an attack on their friend, their loved one. And the next thing you know, you're apologizing to someone because their friend is more than likely a selfish, climate change denying dick. But if you learned something from our conversation with Kate about McMansions and have a better understanding of just how awful they are and the horrors they represent, show your appreciation for a completely listener supported This Is Hell by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener supported this is hell by, by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Not only do you get the bonus weekly Patreon podcast when you become a subscriber with a new monologue from me and a classic interview unavailable anywhere else online, plus the discount on the this is hell merch and a special code word to get that special discount. You also get first crack at every week's question from hell as it is first announced during the Patreon podcast on Thursday mornings. And the newest feature, every week producer Will Ippen chooses a question from hell for me, submitted by you, our Patreon subscribers, a question from hell that I have not seen, nor heard, nor read until Will asks it on the Patreon podcast. That's all on This Is Hell on Patreon and only at patreon.com slash this is hell. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding. I think there were still like another half dozen on Patreon, so maybe we should wrap those up. Okay. Um, uh, the question from hell is, what disease, disorder, or syndrome will Chuck come down with next? Yeah, and we even have d- definitions of each of the three, so you can choose... Your choice between the lovely prizes of disease, disorder, or syndrome. <laughs> yes, and our Patreon subscribers are saying... They're doing a great job this week. A lot of people are responding to this week's question from Helen on Patreon. Um, you know what, Chuck? I've got uh, uh, Twitter and uh, Discord queued up. Oh, yeah, let's do those instead. There. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, Discord... Uh, Twitter's tell uh, we've got a cool uh, graphic from Hypocrite Reader okay. that shows the uh, red book that says "Workers of the World Unite" with the uh, exclamation point and Lenin, the infantile sickness of leftism in communism. Yeah, that was a weird cover. The infantile sickness of leftism in communism. I'm very fascinated by yes. that entire com- uh, contact. Yes, uh, it's uh, published in Moscow in 1920 <laughs> by the uh, Executive Committee of the Communist International. Yeah, I'm very curious. I mean, if anybody's read it, please send me send me a summary. You got it on Audible if you have an audio book of it. That would be great. I'd like to have Patrick Stewart reading it. That would be fantastic. And uh, the follow-up was icy size syndrome. <laughs> okay. What else? Uh, what else on Twitter? Uh, on that's uh, that's Twitter, and uh, we've got some Discord. Okay. Well, um, we've got dance fever. 
<laughs> that's what they think I'm suffering. Can we suffer from next dance fever? I like that. Who said that? That'd be fun. Uh, that's Kim G. Okay. Oh, Kim G. Coming back strong yes. from sating my dog tooth. Right. And uh, X0422 uh, says, says Bader Meinhof compound flex. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That'd be interesting. Yeah, I don't need that to be uh, padding my FBI file. Yes, and uh, whatever Howard Hughes had, <laughs> but the poor version instead. <laughs> That's uh, Hugh. I can uh, afford uh, Kleenex boxes for my shoes. That'd be great. Any more on Discord? Uh, that's it for Discord. Okay, so we'll get back to uh, the rest with uh, Will Ippen on tomorrow's show. He'll be giving us the rest on Patreon as well as the answers on Facebook. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio. Email it to us at chuckatthisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, as we do every week, following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. Dan, again, what is Jeff's moment of truth about this week? Jeff pokes the body of time to find the spot to give it a good Shanking. We will have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell again later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in rotten history. On June 14th, 1830, 193 years ago this week, something happened that there's absolutely nothing I can comment on. I cannot add any comments to this whatsoever because it's just rotten. On June 14, 1830, 193 years ago this week, French troops landed on the North African coast to begin a full-scale invasion of Algiers. The restored French monarchy under Charles X was in political trouble after its failed naval blockade of the famed Algerian port across the Mediterranean. The blockade had been meant to stop pirates based in Algiers from harassing French ships and coastal towns. But after three years, it was being seen as hurting French merchants more than it was hurting the North African pirates. To make matters worse, when the French sent an ambassador to seek a deal, the Algerians had responded with cannon fire. Losing patience and stung by rising public criticism, King Charles X had now sent 567 ships carrying an invasion force of some 34,000 French soldiers. The French troops were met by an Algerian army of roughly equal size, and for the next three weeks, the two sides had it out in a series of battles. About 5,000 North Africans were killed, along with 415 French. The fighting ended with a historic surrender by the North Africans. It marked the beginning of the French colonization of Algeria, which in various forms would last until 1962, 132 years. For more information, check out the dramatization in the 1866 Gilberto Pantecorvo movie, The Battle of Algiers, which was banned in France for five years following its release because of its accurate and very balanced portrayal of the French invasion and occupation of Algeria. Also in Rotten History on June 15, 1904, 119 years ago this week, on the East River adjacent to New York City, the paddle-wheel steamboat General Slocum 
mysteriously caught fire, igniting panic among the approximately 1,800 people aboard, mostly German-Americans, on an annual church-sponsored picnic outing. And as Chicago's worst ship disaster was also picnic-related, apparently a, a lot of ship disasters happened in the U.S. in the early 20th century that had something to do with picnics. The steamboat crew members, who had received almost no emergency training, tried to put out the fire, but they found that the fire hoses on the boat were old and rotten, literally crumbling in their hands. The life preservers were also worthless. Passengers found that they fell apart, and the old chunks of internal stuffing sank instead of floating. Meanwhile, the lifeboats were tied up with wire in such a way that they could not be released into the water. As the fire spread, some desperate passengers jumped into the river and drowned. Others were dumped into the water as the steamboat's dilapidated floorboards broke apart under their feet. I'm starting to doubt the seaworthiness of the General Slocum. In the end, more than a thousand people either burned to death or drowned in one of the worst maritime disasters in U.S. history. The ship's captain would actually face justice and get a 10-year sentence for criminal negligence. But he only served three and a half years because he was pardoned by President William Howard Taft. This guy was involved in the worst maritime disaster in U.S. history, and President Taft pardoned him? Now that's rotten history. And this is Hell. Dan, who is coming up as our next and final guest for this week here on This Is Hell. We'll have historian Joe Goldby will talk to us about our Boston Review article, The Earth for Man. Redistributing land was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. Joe is professor of history at Southern Methodist University. Her most recent book is The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy. And the article is actually an excerpt from that book. Of course, we will also have Jeff Dorchin in the moment of, of truth. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast and live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. Thanks to Rinaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. See? We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>